and welcome to a new season of the Iran podcast, a project of the Center for International Policy. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, a journalist and political analyst based in Washington, D.C. Today, we talk about the recent feminist uprising in Iran that was sparked by the killing of a young Kurdish woman, Mahsa Jina Amini, in September of 2022. We'll discuss the significance of this movement and the state's response to the protesters and the future of this movement and these protests. My guest today is Nader Hashemi, the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver in Colorado. He has written and edited numerous books on Iran and the Middle East, including The People Reloaded, The Green Movement, and The Struggle for Iran's Future. Nader, welcome back to the Iran podcast. Thanks, Nagar. Good to be back. Great to have you back. Let's first talk about this movement, the Woman Life Freedom Movement, as the main slogan of the movement goes. Tell us what happened after the killing and custody of this young Kurdish woman, Mahsa Jina Amini. She was picked up by the Marathi police uh, as she got off a metro in central Tehran, taken to detention, immediately went into a coma and then died, or as her family says, essentially was killed in custody. And it sparked protests in her native region in Kurdistan and then spread to every province across Iran. Talk about the movement, what happened, who joined it, who is leading or not, and what's the significance of woman life freedom? I like um, the characterization of this movement that was recently described by Asif Bayat in his um, essay in the Journal of Democracy, where he characterized this movement as neither a feminist revolution per se, nor simply the revolt of Generation Z nor merely a protest against the mandatory hijab. This is a movement to reclaim life, a struggle to liberate free and dignified existence from an internal colonization. And I think that's um, an accurate reading of what the the thrust of this um, social protest movement has been about. Yes, it began as a um, a women's rights protest as um, a protest over the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian uh, woman. Uh, women led the protests for the first several months in terms of the uh, refusal to wear the mandatory hijab, but it quickly coalesced and became something much bigger, much broader. According to the statistics that we have, you know, roughly 2 million people across 160 cities and small towns um, uh, were protesting in Iran for several months. This generated global media attention and an outpouring of international support. Um, And it really, I think, rocked the Islamic Republic to its core in a way that we haven't seen over the last 44 months. So this is now much more than simply a women's rights protest. It's really a call and a demand for systemic change um, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, as we all know, if anyone's following this topic, the movement has effectively been crushed. Uh, but that's not a surprise if anyone follows the history of revolutionary struggle. Revolutionary uprisings are rarely successful on their first iteration. But I think there's many um, lessons to be learned, a lot of um, successes that have uh, been developed along the way that suggests 
that eventually um, these demands for dignity, for democracy, for self-respect, and for um, a democracy in Iran are eventually going to be victorious somewhere down the road. We don't know exactly where and when this will happen, but I think the nature of this uprising um, is exactly as Asif Bayat has described it. And I think time very much is on the side of the protesters. It's not on the side of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nader, I want to ask you follow a few follow-up questions on um, what you just described. First of all, let's talk about how serious of a threat this posed to the Islamic Republic. You know, at some points during the past few months, um, protesters or observers, um, first of all, were calling this a revolution and assumed that this is bringing an imminent um, collapse of the system or the regime. How serious of a threat was this or still is this movement posing to the Islamic Republic? Well, I think if you look back over the last 44 years of the Islamic Republic, this was the most um, serious threat that the Islamic Republic has faced um, in its post-revolutionary history. But I don't think we came anywhere close to the regime being toppled. I think those narratives were largely the fantasies of outside Iranian private and political interest groups, some people in the, you know, the, the Republican, um, Likud, monarchist, um, MEK camp, who, you know, were of the view that, look, um, we don't need to worry about striking a deal with Iran over its nuclear program. This regime is about to collapse. Objectively speaking, if you look at all of the serious intelligence uh, analysis, both in the United States and in other countries, um, the regime um, suffered a hit to its credibility, to its legitimacy, but it didn't come anywhere close to, to collapsing or falling. Uh, one indication of that, this is that the security forces, particularly the IRGC, remained loyal to the regime and cracked down on protesters very viciously and brutally when they were given the orders to do so. That's usually a good measure of the strength of the regime, whether the security apparatus is loyal to the ruling elite. And in this case, it absolutely was. So it suggests that um, these predictions that the Islamic Republic is on the verge of collapse really were exaggerated predictions that didn't match up with the reality on the ground within the Islamic Republic. So that's my broad view on that topic. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to ask you about the state's response. You just mentioned um, we have human rights organizations um, documenting around 500 protesters killed. This also compares to numbers um, in past protests, essentially the state bringing down an iron fist in trying to crush the protests. Thousands arrested, an unprecedented number uh, were arrested. Uh, some of them already executed. More, dozens more have been put on the death row or are in threat of being executed as well. Journalists, a high number of journalists, dozens of journalists were arrested, including the two women, I want to name them, Nilufar Hamidi and Elahe Muhammadi, who originally reported on, one of them reported, Nilufar reported on Masa Amini in the hospital. She went into a coma and Elahe Muhammadi went to her hometown of Saqqas for the funeral and procession, knowing that she would get in trouble for that coverage. And nevertheless, they did. 
and were arrested and put in uh, detention for it. Um, talk about the state's response um, and how this compares to how they've treated protests in the past and how they've tried to crush mass protests um, in, in the recent history of the Islamic Republic. Uh, the state's response this time around was very similar to previous moments of uprisings in Iran, specifically uh, the 2009 Green Movement uprising. You can see the Islamic Republic responds from a certain clear and identifiable playbook when it comes to popular protests. And what it does is it just starts to crack down on the streets, shoot people, beat people, um, repress them heavily, um, arrest thousands of people and really rough them up brutally in jail, keep them there and then send them back into the population to spread the word of how bad the prison conditions are, slow down or block the internet, and then uh, um, and then uh, develop a, uh, a propaganda narrative that all of this um, domestic turmoil is not really the fault of the internal rulers of Iran, but this is a foreign plot to subvert Iran's independence. Um, um, the usual enemies are identified, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United States, they're to blame for the protests, not uh, the policies of Iran's rulers. And then just sort of try and weather the storm. Hopefully, if you crack down long enough, effect, eventually the protests will um, die down and the regime can reassert full control. That's basically what happened this time around. It happened you know, in 2009 and then also in 2017 and 2019, uh, smaller scale protests, but very much the response has been of, of this particular nature. Um, and unfortunately, you know, again, the Islamic Republic was successful. This time it took a lot longer for the regime to, I think, assert uh, and dominate society. But, you know, looking back over the last roughly half, half a year, a bit longer, uh, the regime has prevailed in its um, brutal repression. And I suspect the next time there's a, uh, an uprising or a series of protests, it's going gonna, it's gonna to draw upon the exact same playbook to try and reassert control. Mm. Now, there, can you also talk about the various segments of the society? You did mention, and I agree with you, essentially it started as a feminist revolt or a feminist uprising. The spark of it was the killing of a young woman. It's centered around a woman's rights issue, their bodily autonomy, how the state is dictating, the state is dictating them to dress. Essentially, Masa Amini was picked up and killed in the custody of the morality police, which polices how women are supposed to dress, the, or is called the quote-unquote guidance patrol gashed the air shot but then it spread to every province and we saw an intersectional community of protesters joining so talk about the um, makeup of of this mass movement and the various segments that joined it at different um, periods of time over the past um, seven or eight months great question i think this is one of the unique um, differing characteristics of this wave of protest than previous waves of protest. It was truly intersectional and overlapping that drew together um, large numbers of Iranians from different political constituencies who all had grievances um, toward the Islamic Republic. And this um, death of Masa Amini and the protest that began soon after her um, murder in prison really ignited all of these disparate groups. Um, specifically, I think it's important to point out that some of the most intense and long-standing protests were in the uh, periphery of Iran on its borders, particularly 
in the uh, province of Baluchistan and also on the other side of Iran in Kurdistan, where you had you know, much larger protests, much more significant state repression. Um, and that's completely understandable because you know, in, in, in terms of Iranian minorities, in this case, um, ethnic and religious minorities, there is um, large scale and systemic um, discrimination and greater poverty in these uh, areas of Iran. So the, 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 the sources of grievance are much, are much stronger there uh, for people to come out and protest. There's also a social network of coordination that exists in these minority communities because they are minority communities that can mobilize people in ways that make it difficult for the regime to stop. So um, that's been a big part of this story. It's the, the revolt and the, uh, the uprisings in the Kurdish and Baluch parts of Iran, but you also saw a lot of protests among students, among workers, uh, Bazari merchants, at least on several occasions, had nationwide strikes. There was an attempt to mobilize oil workers that really didn't go anywhere. But you saw basically a, a convergence, an overlapping of you know, different groups trying their best to demonstrate support for, the, um, for political change in Iran. Um, but of course, always meeting severe regime repression. So I think this is one of the key characteristics that when we compare this moment with other moments of uprisings in Iran over the last 44 years, we have to pay attention particularly to the, um, the overlapping um, uh, convergence of different groups in Iran coming together and protesting um, for different reasons. They all had their, you know, women had, you know, strong reasons ethnic minorities had strong reasons, but you know they were mutually, I think, reinforcing each other by coming out in the street and calling for systemic change. Mm -hmm. Now there, I also want to talk about the role of social media. Um, obviously, it's become uh, more instrumental and significant over the past decade or so, I would say starting with the Green Movement when social media started to have an important role in more organizing, mobilizing, disseminating information um, by the protesters organically on the ground. And the state also responded by uh, cracking down, blocking, filtering uh, since then. And there's been this, this cat and mouse game ever since with protests. The state cuts access to the internet, blocks access to social media. And the protesters uh, still find ways to go around it and use it. And this time around, I would say, was the most significant um, use and uh, presence of social media in this protest. But there's also various different layers to it, as you and I were talking um, before uh, this show. So talk about, first of all, the role of social media. We saw millions of tweets, of posts. Iranians are um, mostly present on Instagram, but also on other channels. And even, uh, I want to uh, remind everyone or tell our, uh, our listeners who don't know, the anthem of this movement or the revolution, the song by... Sherwin Hajipur Baraye because um, was compiled from tweets posted by ordinary Iranian users who were essentially posting a one-liner saying, I am protesting for or I am protesting because of this, because of that. And most of them were just one-liners about 
aspirations or hopes or wishes for normalcy and and things in life that this young generation doesn't have access to and sharing just compiled everything together and essentially put this really beautiful simple song together that became the anthem of this revolution or this movement so talk about the role of social media um, and how you see it from different angles that it's played um, inside and outside the country well, social media has been uh, very important in terms of trying to understand what's been happening in Iran over the last several months in the context of this uprising, in large part because we don't have independent journalists who are allowed into Iran to report honestly. We are dependent on social media to um, try and figure out what's going on. And so, so social media became our entry point into trying to see what's happening on the ground. The videos of protesters that were uploaded became sort of a reference point for us um, getting a um, uh, an understanding as to what's happening within the ground. As you said, it also um, helped mobilize people to the extent that they could break the um, censorship rules that were imposed on on um, the internet in Iran. Um, but also social media, you know, has a negative aspect as well. It can um, lead to um, uh, warped and distorted analysis. It can lead to the perpetuation of conspiracy theories. Um, it can lead to a lot of, I think, acrimonious and bitter and very unethical um, attacks on different Iranian um, journalists, activists, leaders, because it's unfiltered, it's uncensored. So, um, you know, social media has to be, I think, viewed um, both in its positive manifestation, but also we need to be aware of the negative aspects that flow from social media as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, the only entry point that many of us had was to really follow these uh, tweets and these videos that were, you know, taken from within Iran and then uploaded on social media that gave us a lens into what was happening on the ground. The next step or the challenge was how far can we uh, go in interpreting, you know, those posts that we saw, how representative were they of events happening on the ground? Um, and so that's, that's, that's the challenge of interpretation and analysis. So those are my... Those are my broad views on the role of social media in this particular story. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I agree with you. And I had a little bit of, an, uh, of a share of some of that toxicity and the attacks essentially or that journalists, particularly women, um, during the movement and the various interest groups that um, essentially weaponize and use social media to push out a certain narrative that's not necessarily that organic and on the ground um, uh, happening that's that's uh, going on in the country. Let's also talk about the role of the Iranian diaspora. We saw that the Iranian diaspora really came together, mobilized, organized. I would compare it to the green movement in, in scope and longevity um, and they uh, essentially try to echo and be the voice of Iranians inside Iran. Talk about their role um, and how much these solidarity protests or the various pressures actually helped or were successful in supporting Iranians inside Iran. This is an important part of the story. I'm glad you asked me about it. Um, one of the good things that this uprising has produced is um, a mobilization of Iranians living outside of Iran to take very seriously the question of politics, political change, and democracy in Iran. 
we saw a mass mobilization of Iranians in all major cities around the world that is really unprecedented, much larger and much greater than in 2009 during the Green Movement. Um, in October of last year, there was over 100,000 people that came together in Berlin for, I think, the largest you know, protests of not just Iranians, but Germans and others. Um, and so this is significant. I think these types of protests help keep the story of Iran in the spotlight. It helped generate media attention. It helped uh, keep Iran in the public conversation. And it also, I think, you know, helped Iranians back inside Iran to let them know that they weren't alone, that there was massive global support for their political aspirations. So I think in this sense, um, these protests were incredibly important. The other point that I want to mention is that if anyone is following, you know, Iranian political culture, either inside Iran or outside Iran in the diaspora community, prior to Masa Amini's death, there was general and widespread political apathy. No one was really interested in politics. No one had sort of any sense of a uh, hope for a better Iran that might um, come about as a result of some democratic transition. Everyone was just going about their lives. But one of the good things that this um, uprising has produced is a politicization of Iranians, who many of whom were previously very apolitical. A lot of those people who came to these demonstrations were not known activists, but they were, I think, very much inspired and organized and um, you know, willing to sort of take time out of their daily routine to, to, to participate in a protest movement with the hope of you know, encouraging protesters back on Iran. So that's fundamentally a good thing, because one of the strategies of authoritarian rulers is to try and uh, depoliticize your society. Let them just go about their way. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about political change. Don't talk about democracy and human rights. Um, this is a core strategy of authoritarianism. And thankfully, in this case, um, uh, it's backfired. And, and, and largely, I think credit goes to those Iranians inside Iran who risked their lives to come out in the street to confront the security forces, thus inspiring Iranians in the diaspora to also stage um, you know, solidarity uh, strikes and protests in support of their brother and sisters back at home. Mm -hmm. And Nader, I want to also ask you, you may brief, uh, briefly mention, but I want you to elaborate on what the movement has achieved so far. Um, we hear reports, eyewitnesses, sources, images, video, photo coming out of Iran that women have um, started this essentially or uh, to a very extreme extent taken this acts of civil disobedience on a daily basis by not observing um, the state dress code. And it's, it's really changed the image, the public image of the society. I have friends who travel to run. Obviously, I can't in, uh, in exile, but I have non-political friends who travel to Iran regularly a few times a year. And even they tell me that they get surprised after a couple of months or three, four months traveling into the country and seeing the sheer number of women, young and old, who are unveiled um, and essentially defying this uh, dress code in public. So that's at least one achievement. And I think they have been able to push the state back um, and make a giant leap in continuation of a, of a slow fight against the mandatory job that had been going on for the past 40 years, but we certainly see a giant leap. But talk about 
if you see any political achievement or if you also see this um, giant leap that I'm talking about as something that's reversible, can the state push them back? Is this something that they're just waiting for the right moment? Will the morality police be dispatched again? Or do you think this is something that's just not reversible? Yeah, I don't think it's reversible. I think um, this protest moment is really a turning point in the future of Iran, largely because of a certain psychological transformation that has taken place in the hearts of minds of many Iranians, both inside the country and outside. And that psychological change is a sense that, you know, if people do organize and confront the security forces, they can obtain some victories, even if they're small victories, they're important ones. Um, one of the clear victories is the point that you just mentioned. It's because of these uprisings uh, across Iran, particularly led by women, that women have been able to reclaim certain areas of public space where the regime no longer is able or willing to crack down and forcibly impose the hijab on women's heads. This phenomenon that we saw after the uprising began, where the morality police was basically rolled back, and you started to see reports of um, uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of women, you know, vo volunteering uh, themselves to go out into public space and to defy the regime's hijab law, that in and of itself is a victory. But I think the bigger victory here is the one that I alluded to earlier, the psychological victory, the idea that Iranians can um, organize, mobilize, and get concessions from the state and advance a democratic project. The idea that that simply being politically apathetic um, and, and going about you know, people's daily lives and not worrying about politics, that's a paradigm shift, I think, in the hearts and the minds in terms of how, of how Iranians think about the future. Um, uh, any successful revolutionary movement requires an element of hope that if people organize, mobilize, and sacrifice, then eventually victory will be there. So if I had to point to one aspect of the success that we've seen in Iran is this broad psychological and cultural transformation. And it's very much reflected in the point that you mentioned earlier um, with the development of um, these um, uh, forms of artistic expression that have resonated deep into the hearts and minds of Iranians. So Sherevin Hajipur's song, you know, because has now become the anthem of, um, of, of this revolutionary moment. Every Iranian uh, knows this song, is inspired by it. The fact that it was constructed from various tweets and beautifully sung by um, someone who really wasn't known before is a, is, is a reflection of this point that I'm trying to make. There's also been an abundance of poetry, artistic work, um, um, exhibitions, um, you know, I suspect soon films are gonna be developed around this. So all of this signifies that this is much more than simply um, a moment where there was an uprising and the regime crushed it, but there's been a certain psychological and cultural transformation in the hearts of minds of Iranians that I think is an important foundational building block for future political change down the road. Mm -hmm. And finally, Nader, because I know you look at the region as a whole and you followed protest movements in other neighboring countries to Iran. Talk about this from a geopolitical lens because Iran's domestic politics also do relate to its regional and foreign policy and how the Islamic Republic sees itself, its role in the region and in the world. Put this in a geopolitical perspective uh, for us and how you think this 
internal movement or the uprising or just threat to the state has and will impact um, its policies when it comes to both the region and also the broader world? Well, regionally speaking, yeah, it depends on, you know, which components of the regional order in the Middle East we're talking about. The ruling elites in the Middle East, particularly those that were antagonistic to Iran, I think very much hoped that this uprising would bring about the collapse of the Islamic Republic and then some um, um, friendlier regime would replace it. We saw that very much in the heavy amount of um, uh, money and resources that were invested by the Saudis, sort of really focusing attention on this uprising. Um, I think there's been a change of um, uh, policy in Saudi Arabia, realizing that the regime is no longer um, as weak as perhaps they thought it would be, and that, that the Islamic Republic, at least for the foreseeable future, is here to stay. And I think that was a big motive in Saudi Arabia, changing course and reestablishing diplomatic relations with Iran. At the societal level throughout the region, I think anytime there's a popular uprising against an authoritarian regime, that inspires other groups of people in the region to also take up um, the struggle for uh, nonviolent protests to confront authoritarian regimes, of which there is a vast abundance of them throughout the Middle East and North Africa. So if you follow what was happening at the civil society level throughout the region, a lot of, a lot of young activists throughout the Arab world and North Africa were inspired by the protests, um, and that's not something unique. We saw this you know, um, back in 2009, where the protests in Iran at that moment did inspire Arab activists. And there's arguments to be made that the Arab Spring uprising in 2011 very much um, uh, took some um, benefit or, or benefited from the uprising in Iran a year and a half earlier. So I think that's the broad regional layout of what's happening in the region. Um, now, of course, politically, we're seeing all of these former enemies and former foes among the ruling elites in the Middle East reestablishing diplomatic relations and um, turning the page over previous conflict. That's obviously a good thing because we want the guns to fall silent, but I don't think that's going to make any sort of long-term difference because throughout the region, I think the problems that are at the core of the uprising in Iran also apply to many countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And I'm speaking specifically of the mass pauperization, the mass expansion of poverty, the, the disillusionment, the lack of hope, and on top of that, how states uh, throughout the region, in many ways reflecting the policies of the Islamic Republic of Iran, have become more uh, authoritarian, more repressive, more draconian, um, and um, a deep disillusionment among people throughout the region over the policies of ruling elites, suggesting that this is a region that is ripe for further revolt and revolution down the road, um, and that the authoritarian sort of stability argument that sometimes we hear from people in Washington, D.C., is very much a warped analysis that I, do, I don't think has any long-term um, viability given the underlying socioeconomic political frustrations that exist at the grassroots level among all people across the Middle East that often produces these types of, types of uprisings that we've seen in Iran uh, recently. Well, on that note, Nader, I want to thank you for coming back on the Iran podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Nagar. Welcome back. I'm glad to see that the podcast is up and running again and look forward to hearing many of your episodes in the coming weeks and months. Thank you, Nader. That was Nader Hashemi, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver in Colorado. And thank you for listening to the new season of the Iran podcast. 
You can find us on all major podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, and the rest. So please subscribe to us and leave us a review and rating to help us be seen by more listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, and until next week, goodbye. Thank you.